If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 1. Titus, chapter 1. Of the 13 letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote, four of them were written to individuals. One to Philemon, which comes after Titus. Two were written to Timothy, and one was written to Titus. We've studied Philemon and First and Second Timothy. We've, we haven't studied Titus, and so I thought we would do that now. Philemon is the last of what we know as Paul's prison letters or prison epistles. He wrote it when he was a prisoner of the Roman Empire. Some other letters were written during this time, such as First and Second Timothy. But First and Second Timothy, along with Titus, have not been known as prison epistles, but pastoral epistles or pastoral letters. Philemon is an intimate letter that Paul writes to a friend, the man who owned a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus had run away, and Paul sends him back and asks Philemon to forgive him and to establish a right relationship because after Onesimus ran away he ran into Paul and he became a Christian Philemon was a Christian and so now they are brothers and Paul writes to him in that regard I think what Paul wants Philemon to know and the rest of us is that spiritual conversion that being a Christian changes social relationships and it makes us equal in the eyes of God we are brothers and sisters the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, I think in many ways help us to consider and answer the question, how are we to pass the faith on to the next generation? It's well and good that we are Christians, but how do we make sure that our children, but also the next generation, that they keep the faith as God intends? Some of us are what are known as second generation Christians or perhaps even third generation, that our parents were Christians and they tried to raise us accordingly. Um, the fact that we've remained Christians um, is probably different in each life. Um, some may have turned away from the faith for a time and then come back. Um, God has graciously brought them back. Um, some would say that they are Christians in spite of their upbringing, uh, that God has graciously sustained them. But we need to see ourselves as part of a continuum. God has had people since Abraham thousands of years ago, and it will continue, it continues in our lives, and it will continue beyond us. And the question is, what do we do about the people in the beyond us, the generations that will come after us? For us, this is not a rhetorical question. Uh, for the children that we have in our congregation we need to know how to pass the faith on. And particularly in light of the fact that there is, I believe, growing hostility uh, to the Christian faith and those who claim to be God's people. Today, we begin our study of the book of Titus, Paul's letter to Titus. And I just want to say something here at the beginning to get it out of the way. It's not something that, if you have questions, we can talk about this later. But... Um, until the 19th century, anyone who read the book of Titus assumed that Paul wrote it because Paul says he wrote it. But in the 19th century, scholars began to question whether or not Paul wrote it. Um, 
this and the first and second Timothy as well. Um, I find no reason to question Pauline uh, authorship. Paul wrote this. Um, and it's not a blind or empty assertion. Um, actually, when I was a grad student at UCLA in one of my seminars, I wrote a paper defending Pauline authorship of the pastoral epistles. Um, I'm convinced that Paul wrote this, and that's what it says, and I hope that you will trust my judgment. But if not, you can talk to me and we can talk about it afterwards. So Paul writes it, and he writes it to Titus. But who is Titus? We don't know as much about him as we do about Timothy. We do have some important facts mentioned in other letters of Paul. First of all, he is a Greek, or he was a Greek, meaning that he was not circumcised, that uh, circumcision was a sign of the covenant with the Jews. He was not Jewish, but he became a part of the people of God, and he remained uncircumcised. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Fascinating that Titus seems to be the proof, the evidence that those Gentiles who become Christians, who become followers of Jesus, do not have to become Jews. The men do not have to be circumcised. And Titus is proof positive of that, as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2. So he's a Greek. But interestingly enough, he has a Roman name. Um, Titus means title of honor. Uh, the Roman emperor from 79 to 81 was named Titus. It was also, before he became emperor, he was a general, and he is the one who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, so... In the first century, this is a fairly significant name. We also know from Paul's writings that Timothy or Titus, I'm sorry, was a co-worker of Paul's and he was entrusted with important matters. And I'll mention several here. First of all, he had to carry what we know as first Corinthians to the Corinthian church. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 2. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I could not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. So Paul had sent Titus, but there's no word from Titus. He has carried this all-important letter, this hard letter from Paul. But, you know, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have cell phones he hadn't heard from uh, Titus. And then in 2 Corinthians 7, which is, I think, 
one of the most moving passages for me in Paul's letters. He says, For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. It's quite remarkable. How does God comfort us? He often comforts us by each other. We shouldn't expect some type of ethereal experience to happen. That may happen. But the reality is God uses us to comfort one another. He continues, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Titus tells Paul, they got your letter and they were convicted by it. They repented and, and Paul is, is rejoicing because he's gotten this good news from Titus. Titus did something else when he was in Corinth and other places, and that is he was part of the team that collected money for the poor in Jerusalem. Um, this is in 2 Corinthians 8. I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. Titus is going back to Corinth. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has proved to us, who has often proved to us in many ways, that he is zealous and even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you for our brothers. They are representatives of the church and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that, that the churches can see it. If there's any situation that is delicate, it is money. And now the Corinthians and the other Gentile churches have heard about their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, because you may remember that many of the people left Jerusalem because of persecution. Well, the people who left had the money to leave. The people who didn't have money, they're stuck. And they are impoverished. And so wherever Paul goes, he preaches and he says, listen, we got the gospel from them, we need to help them. So collect the money and then we will take it to them. Well, I'm putting a lot of trust in you. Um, well, Paul says, Titus is going to go with it. He's going with the gift along with me and others. Another thing that we're told about Titus is that he is going to rejoin Paul. Right now he is in Crete. We'll see that in a bit. That's where Paul is writing him. Um, at the end of Titus in chapter 3, verse 12, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me to Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. And then in 2 Timothy 4, at the end of the book, he says that Titus has gone to Dalmatia, which is a further up uh, the coast there. This is all we know about Titus, but it seems more than enough. This is someone who worked with Paul someone that Paul trusted, someone he entrusted with important ministries, including carrying a letter and then collecting the money uh, that can be taken to Jerusalem. 
But now he has been left in Crete, and he has an important job there, and that's what this letter is about. In studying this letter, we need to know something about the author, because the author is the one who gives the book its life. We need to know something about the circumstances under which it was written. Why did the author write it? What was his purpose? What was the intended audience? We will come to the author in a a minute, um, but let's start with the occasion of this letter. One of the things I think people fail to misunderstand about the New Testament epistles is that they are correspondence, they are letters. They are brought about by a set of historical circumstances. Paul doesn't just simply sit down and begin to write, you know, once upon a time there are problems and this is what you need to do. These are very specific historical situations in the life of Paul or in the life of the recipients. Um, oftentimes the Bible has been described as God's love letter to me. Um, as wonderful and romantic as that sound, it really misses the point. This is Paul. He's a real person writing to Titus, a real person who is in Crete, which is a real place, and there are issues that need to be resolved. We're listening in, and we can learn from this, but Paul's not writing to Damon. Okay? He's writing to Titus. Damon can learn as he reads this letter that Paul wrote. This is important because Titus is so similar to 1 Timothy that some people see it as a mini 1 Timothy, sort of a miniature version of that. Um, and so I think that's why people haven't studied Titus very much, because like, oh yeah, we've already done that. We, we studied 1 Timothy, and, and so, yeah, we already know what Titus is all about. But if you take that attitude, then you miss the, the occasion of the writing of this letter the location of it, and the purpose of it. You see, Titus was in Ephesus. Paul had lived in Ephesus longer than any other place during his missionary journeys. Titus is in Crete. And Paul apparently had passed through, had begun a work, and now he leaves Titus there to finish the work. Um, Paul will write to Timothy about elders. He will write to Titus about elders. But two very different situations. In Ephesus, the elders are the problem. They are the false teachers. Some of them have become false teachers. For Titus, they don't have elders yet. Titus needs to appoint elders. So while the qualifications for elders are given to Timothy and to Titus, they're for very different purposes. For Timothy, they are corrective. You know, you've got some guys who are elders who should not be elders. For Titus, you need to appoint men to be elders in all the cities so that there can be someone who is, in fact, in charge. Timothy's letter is corrective. Titus's is instructive. The list that he gives of qualifications are very similar, but why shouldn't they be? We're talking about the office of elder and overseer. Yes, they in fact um, are similar because they're dealing with the issue of eldership. We've seen this in other letters that we've studied of Paul's, that the way they wrote letters is very different from the way we do it today. Today we say, dear so-and-so, and then you have the letter, 
um, you know, if you're, you might say, how are you? I am fine. And then you do. And then at the end, you say sincerely or truly yours. And then you write your name. In the ancient world, they did it quite the reverse. It starts out with, this is Paul. Okay. First of all, you have the person who is writing. Then he's the person he's writing to. And here it is Titus. Then there's a greeting of some sort, as well as thanksgiving for the recipient's well-being. The opening of this letter is, follows that pattern, but there is a difference. Because here Paul spends more time talking about being an apostle than he generally does. Okay? So, if you would, let's look at the first four verses here in Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace to you from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. First of all, the author. This is Paul. And interestingly, this is only the third time in Paul's letters that he opens the letter this way. The other time that he does this is to the Romans and then to the Philippians. Um, He refers to himself as a servant. Now, if you read Paul's letters, he does this quite often, but not at the beginning of the letter. Um, Oftentimes, particularly like with the Corinthians, he needs to say, Paul, an apostle. Listen, I'm an apostle. You need to listen to me. But here as he writes to Titus, he begins with the fact that, in fact, he is a servant. This is his attitude. He serves the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a bondservant. This is his relationship to God. But he also has certain authority. He serves God as his apostle. So Paul mentions both. I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm also an apostle. I'm someone who has been commissioned as an apostle. Now normally, when Paul writes about the fact that he's an apostle, he says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. He doesn't do that here. Interestingly enough, he says, well, he describes his apostleship in terms of its purpose. Why did God, in fact, make him an apostle? He says, for the faith of God's elect, for the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That is, it is for the faith, the trust that people have in Jesus Christ, those who have become God's chosen people, like the Old Testament. They are now part of God's people, beginning with Abraham and coming up through the New Testament. Paul has been commissioned to be an apostle that the work might continue. He goes on to say, for the knowledge of the truth. Yes, they have become the people of God. They have heard the good news. But they need to live a particular way. It isn't just that somehow they've been touched by a magic wand and they've become the people of God and that's all you need to know. You're going to heaven when you die. But they are, in fact, to live as though they are God's people. This year we've been reading through the Bible together and back in the Old Testament you may remember that God had very specific requirements about even how his people were to dress and trim their beards and what they were to eat and not eat. 
because they are the people of God, the chosen people of God. Well, now that we're in the New Testament and we are the chosen people of God, there are still certain things we are to do and not do. And Paul has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus to be someone to teach people the gospel, to preach the gospel, but also to teach them how, in fact, they are supposed to live. If you look at verse number two, you'll see that faith and knowledge are not mere abstractions, these things out there. He says, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, I love that, God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Faith and knowledge rest on the promises of God, the hope of eternal life. And God promises before the beginning of time. I was like, wait a minute. Who existed before the beginning of time? The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the promises that were made were made within the dance, if you wish, of the Trinity, of the Father, Son, and Spirit. This is something that God, who does not lie, promised. The promises is that he would have a people, those who would be called by his name. I think in some ways this goes beyond our understanding. And as Paul describes it elsewhere, it is hidden in God until it is revealed by the Spirit. Paul wrote this to the Colossians. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. There it is. God commissioned Paul to be a servant to present the gospel. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to his saints. Paul means is that what we as God's people are now experiencing belongs to something that happened even before God said, let there be light, before God created the world. We are now a part of that. It's quite amazing when you think about it. It's been revealed now that Jesus has come into the world and now that Jesus has ascended. It is the Spirit who reveals these things to those who are God's people. Some people don't like this language, by the way, the elect and God's purposes before the beginning of time. But consider the alternative. Either God knew what was going to happen all along or God is a God of reaction. So when Adam and Eve sinned, God's scrambling to come up with a plan B because that's not how it's supposed to be. And then you have all the wickedness, and so you have plan C with Noah and the ark. And then Tower of Babel, plan D, and then you, you just keep having more and more plans. No, God has always known. God has always had a purpose. And that purpose is the good news, the gospel revealed by Jesus Christ. Verse number three, at his appointed time, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. God knows, has known, will always know what he is going to do, what he has done. That's why on the one hand, Paul embraces the fact that he is a servant. And on the other hand, he insists that he has authority as an apostle. 
Paul, in, I would say from the 19th century on, has really gotten a bad rap by a lot of people. They just see him as just sort of obnoxious and bossy and telling people what to do. Um, I think they've really missed the point. First of all, he emphasizes that he is a servant. But if you're a school teacher, imagine that you're a school teacher and you're supposed to teach math. And you're teaching basic things like addition. Two plus two is four. And then somebody says, well, no, teacher, I I want two plus two to be five. You're like, no, it's four. Well, no, what about six? No, it's four. Well, you seem really bossy. That's how people view Paul. But Paul says, God, I didn't ask for this. God put this on me. And so I'm here to share the gospel and to make sure that things are done correctly. So this is Paul, the writer. And who is he writing? He's writing Titus. To Titus, my true son in our common faith. Literally, this is Titus, my legitimate son. And why is he legitimate? Because they have a common faith. Because you see, Paul is a Jew. And Titus is a Gentile. But the gospel is for both of them. They have a common faith. And we shouldn't skip over that. We are all Gentiles, and so we we take it for granted. But no, this is early on. And Paul says, I'm a Jew. I'm a follower of Jesus. Titus, you're a Gentile. You're a follower of Jesus. We have a common faith. And then the greeting. If you look at the greeting... Grace and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. In that day, a common greeting was karen. That's how people greeted one another. It meant greetings. Paul changes this to charis, which means grace. It reflects the basis of God's work, his redemptive work, his gracious work. Grace empowers his people. We have God's grace. But he adds something else, and that is peace. And that's a very Hebrew greeting, shalom. So in fact, what you find is grace and peace. God's work in the New Testament and the Old Testament, they come together in this greeting. Peace is a word that summarizes the new world. It's transformed by the work of Christ from its fallen state to a redeemed state. And so I think in this greeting, we have the past, the present, and the future. In the past, we have shalom, a greeting of God's Old Testament people, charis, grace, in the present, but we also look to the future when we will be with the Lord forever. Now we'll come to the first section of the letter, and that is the appointing of elders. This is the reason, the occasion for this letter. Um, verse number five, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. It would seem from this that Paul had, in fact, with Titus, traveled through Crete. He had preached there. Some had become believers. We don't know how many, but we would assume a significant number because now they need to be organized into congregations. And it seems that in every town that Paul went to, there were believers. People had, in fact, put their faith in Christ. But there was no leadership. And and Paul had moved on to another place. He left Titus behind to do what Paul actually should have done, but he was going somewhere else. He left Titus, somebody he trusted with important matters, 
to organize these congregations and to appoint elders. I would point out as we come to verse number six through nine that this focuses more on qualifications rather than duties. Verse number nine, I think, speaks of duty that will lead us to the next section. But also notice that the qualifications deal with outward behavior, something that can be observed. And then also, and this you'd have to know more about the history of the time, but the qualifications that he mentions are in line with society. That is to say, if these elders have these qualifications, people in society would say, that's a good man. He's living a good and straight life. So it's not as though Paul is asking for bizarre behavior, but rather that they would in fact be good citizens and that they would act right, that their their observable behavior, what outsiders could see, would in fact uh, be, yeah, this, this person is a follower of Jesus. I've mentioned this before, but in the second century, uh, there was a time in the church where if you became a Christian and then you said, I want to be baptized, the elders of the church would say, fine. And for the next year or two, they would interview your neighbors and they would ask your neighbors, is this person a Christian? Even though your neighbors might be unbelievers, there had to be something about your outward behavior. And this isn't legalism. This is if God has transformed your life, it is to be seen in your behavior. So here are the qualifications. Look, if you would, in verse 6. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. First of all, verse number six, I think this is his relationship with his family. He is to be blameless. That is, as people observe his life, there's nothing that they would point to to say that there is something wrong. This is not a call for perfection, by the way. We are all sinners and uh, we, we sin, we make mistakes, uh, we lose our temper. Um, but generally speaking, the life of this elder must be one that is seen as blameless. This is seen in marital fidelity. He is the husband of but one wife. This qualification seems to cause the most problem with people. Um, does an elder have to be married? Um, after all, Paul and Timothy were not married as far as we know, and we don't, we don't think that Titus was married either. Um, it is interesting, though, that Paul, Titus, and Timothy were not elders. Okay? Uh, they were messengers, but they were apostles, and Paul was capital A apostle. Um, I don't think that an elder must be married, but if, in fact, he is married, he must be blameless in the sight of others in his relationship with his wife, that he is faithful to her. And in a culture in which marital infidelity was almost a given, uh, an elder of the people of God had to be marked by fidelity to his wife. Then his children must be believers. 
and that they are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And so we have two sides of this coin here. The positive is they must be believers. Secondly, they must not be wild and disobedient. And this calls to mind the story of Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of uh, Eli, the high priest. And they were wicked men. And in fact, God killed them for their wickedness. Uh, an elder cannot be like Eli and let his kids get away with such wickedness. But I also would point out Deuteronomy chapter 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of the town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. You will notice that the, the child they're speaking of, this is our son, is an adult. Okay? Because he's described as a profligate and a drunkard, a glutton and a drunkard. This is not a child. Okay? This is someone who is perhaps in his late 20s or even 30s. This is someone who is not living as he should. But his parents still have some authority over him and they take him to the elders of the town and he is to be put to death. Now, in verse number 7, we come to a second group of qualifications and this deals with the elders' relationship with outsiders, with those not a part of his family. And here, he is not referred to as an elder, okay, but as an overseer. Okay. Um, I think the two terms are interchangeable, but I think elder refers to a certain maturity. So someone who is young cannot be an elder. Overseer refers to certain managerial skills, someone who is the head of a household, who controls his household, and therefore he can, in fact, be in charge of the people of God in that particular congregation. So again, you will notice that blameless is mentioned again. It's repeated. That is, as people observe his life, they will say of this person, yes, he is doing things well. There are five vices to be avoided. He is not to be overbearing. Remember that he is a servant, not a master. He is not to be quick-tempered. In Timothy's list, we have gentle and peaceful. He is not given to drunkenness. Now, the Bible doesn't teach total abstinence. This is pretty much a 19th century phenomenon in the church. Um, but rather, it focuses on drunkenness. That is, if you drink too much, you are more likely to lose control and do things you should not do. And in this particular case, drunkenness can lead to violence. And so an overseer is not to be given to drunkenness. He is not to pursue dishonest gain. This will come up again later in the letter, so we'll deal with it then. The positives, we have six of them here. He is to be hospitable. This is required, by the way, of all of God's people. But the overseer is to be an example of this. Um, just because he's an elder or an overseer, it's like, yeah, I don't have to do that. You all, you all need to be hospitable. I don't have to. He has to be an example. He is the one who loves that which is good, one who is self-controlled. 
You know the fruit of the Spirit. The last thing mentioned is self-control. Someone who is upright in his duty toward others. Someone who is holy and disciplined. Holy toward God. Disciplined toward others. And then his duties. In verse number 9. We have the qualifications, but now the duties. Threefold, he must hold firmly to the faith. That's with regard to himself. He, as a believer, must hold firmly to the faith so that he can encourage others. That's how he deals with those in the congregation, by sound uh, doctrine. And thirdly, so he can refute those who reject the gospel, those who say, yeah, that story about Jesus, that's not true. That, that's, yeah, that's not true. So he can refute them. He can, in fact, give an answer. This will lead to the next section, which the Lord willing we will look at next Sunday, in which Paul will deal with the issue of false teachers. I think we should be struck by this, and I don't know if you are as we've gone through this, what Paul does not include in his list of qualifications for an elder. He doesn't say a word about personality. An elder needs to be an extrovert. He needs to be outgoing. That's not mentioned. That he's charismatic. Has a, like, uh, just a dynamic personality. That he has great speaking ability. Or even the physical appearance. You know, that we want good looking elders and overseers. Choosing someone to be an elder in the church requires that we look for qualities that reflect a grace filled life. And it is seen not simply in how he deals with the congregation, but how he deals with his family and how he deals with unbelievers. That even unbelievers would say, this is a good man. He's leading a blameless life. I would argue that in our society today, we don't think that way. We are much more driven by celebrity. We're a consumer society. We want... uh, Someone who is dynamic, someone who's good looking, someone who's got personality plus, this is someone who should be a leader. And that's not what we find from Paul. In Vietnamese history, um, Li Patma was the second king in the Li dynasty, and not only the greatest king of the Li dynasty, but perhaps the greatest king in Vietnamese history. This is in the 10th century or early 11th century. He was a very dynamic and charismatic king. And as a result, there was sort of an ongoing battle between him and his counselors. Because by the force of his personality, he was able to govern and rule wisely and well. But his counselors said, Sir, king, may you live forever. You're not going to live forever. What happens with the person after you or after him? What if they're not dynamic? What if they don't have a great personality? What you need to do is to create an infrastructure, a system, organize your kingdom, so that no matter who is the king at the top, things will still run smoothly. He he reigned for 25 years, or 26 years. In the first five years, they sort of went round and round and round about this, and finally he gave in to them and said, okay, And so they came up uh, with a system that was quite organized so that even after he passed away and and was replaced by his son, uh, the kingdom could still run smoothly. 
they created an institutional foundation for the kingdom of Dai Viet, that is northern Vietnam. Some people think this is what Paul is doing. And it's one of the reasons why they reject Pauline authorship of Titus. The theory is Paul was a very dynamic, outgoing, extroverted person. And he knew that, well, he didn't know, but the people after him like, yeah, we don't have any more Pauls around, so we need to institutionalize structure. We need to organize our churches. And such people would say, you know, back during Paul's day, the Spirit led people, and that's what they did. They didn't have leadership. They were all led by the Spirit of God. And then after Paul died, about 40 years later, somebody said, yeah, this is not going to work. We need to have elders, overseers, deacons, bishops. And so they, they pretended as though Paul wrote this letter. No. No. People would say even today, the church must be organic. It's a living organism. I don't disagree. But you know, I am a living organism and I have a brain that sends messages to the rest of the body. I have a heart that pumps blood to the rest of my body. There are different parts that have different functions. And if you have an organism, you still have to have leadership. So, this is a letter written by Paul to Titus in Crete to say, listen, you need to get some men who can be elders and overseers to take care of the people of God. And we'll see in the weeks to come how it is that to take care of the people of God. But this is Paul speaking. And by the way, I'm not convinced that Paul was a dynamic, charismatic personality. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said that he came with fear and trembling. And there are different theories that Paul, in fact, was not a very attractive person to look at. Um, I think in many ways people are projected back and they see, because when they read Paul, he sounds like he's just, you know, just full of, he's got the power. And, you know, after Paul leaves, then what are you going to have? No. It is all by the grace of God that we have the Spirit of God. And some people need to be leaders in the congregation. And those who are going to be leaders in the congregation need to have certain qualifications. At home, in the workplace, in church, they need to have these qualifications. And now Titus has got to select men to do precisely that, to be elders in the churches. And Paul says, okay, here's the list. These are the things you're looking for. They're not the things we would look for. Reminded of what we find in Isaiah, that my ways are not your ways. And that's certainly the case when it comes to leadership in this country today. We have a very, very different view of leadership than what Scripture does. But Titus has a job. Paul tells him what the job is. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, what that job involves. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you for your word. And though it is Paul writing to Titus centuries ago, we today can learn from it. It is scripture. God breathed. It's not written to us, but we can learn from it. We who live in a time in which 
we have a very distorted view of leadership that's come into the church. May we learn from what Paul wrote to Titus. In the weeks to come as we go through this, may you give us understanding by your Spirit. Again, we pray for Stacy as she recuperates. Give her strength. And we thank you for the wonderful news from Ken about his new job. It's just a great reminder of how you care for us day by day. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.